I'm Jeannie Allen, and this is Reality Check. Reality Check is produced by National Review and is one of more than a dozen podcasts offered on the National Review online website. If you'd like a free subscription to the podcast so that you never miss a program, simply sign up at iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or tune in. Hi, this is Jeannie Allen, and you're listening once again to Reality Check. I'm delighted to have as my guest today Robert Pendicio. Robert is a dear friend, uh, writer, author, communications person extraordinaire in the uh, education field now. Oh, my. And education <laughs> reform field. Uh, Robert's a senior fellow officially and VP for External Affairs at the, Thomas- senior. <laughs> <laughs> at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, senior advisor to Democracy Prep Public Schools, a network of high-performing charter schools based in Harlem. Writes, speaks extensively, has written uh, Time Business Week because he's got just tons and tons of uh, journalism experience. (laughs) Robert won't shut up. You can just Google him and then you'll know all the things that I don't really have to tell you now. Why are you um, here, Robert? And for our listeners, why did I invite Robert? Because uh, he is probably one of the most articulate people in the field today when it comes to these pernicious issues about education, education reform, accountability. Yeah. Welcome, Robert. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I thought we would spend our time talking about the issues of the day, everything that you ever want to know about education content, but curriculum, we're teaching. To ask. Exactly, in less than 30 minutes. Okay, let's do it. So let's jump in. So, um, first, I have to uh, let me start with this because in a U.S. News and World Report article, you post um, that we are really asking the wrong questions when it comes to things like school choice. You said the real debate we should be having is what kind of education system? Do we actually want? Yeah, I think so. And I think you and I more or less agree on this, right? In other words, uh, I have a complicated relationship with, uh, with with testing and accountability the way that's classically defined. I mean, I always feel the need to, to caveat this. I love accountability. I love testing. I like the data from testing. Um, but I'm not sure, and I speak as a former fifth grade South Bronx school teacher uh, in, in New York City. I, I'm, I'm not sure we're always mindful enough of the downstream effects of our testing and accountability policies. I mean, I'm not saying anything that people haven't said for years about how you know the, the, the testing tail wags the schooling dog, and and we have to be mindful of that. All right, well, wait. You're jumping into major debate here that a lot of people okay. are having in their homes and their kitchen tables. Like, oh my gosh, are we testing Johnny and Sarah and Jose? too much, you know, or and can't we just let them be free to be loved and play? Is that what you're saying, that no, we shouldn't no, have schools that test and hold kids no, accountable? No, see, this is, this is the whole thing. And I, and I'm, I'm, do I sound like a liberal? You, you kind of <laughs> do. You, you know, and this is, you know, and I, I'm always the guy who says, you know, remember, was it the Harry Truman who talked about he wanted a one-handed economist? Because, you know, on this hand, on the other hand, I have 10 hands on this. Um, so, look, I value the data from, from, from testing. If we don't have the data, we're not aware of the achievement gap. We go back to, you know, just assuming that all kids are fine, et cetera, et cetera. But the argument is not an argument. My, my counsel to our reform-minded friends is if we continue to push this stuff the way we have been, uh, you know, the Amer- American parents are rejecting this like a baboon liver. They've had enough. They don't want their kids' schooling turned into test prep plus. Uh, and then we end up losing the whole thing. Then it's, then it's all those things you just said. Oh, mm-hmm. stop testing. Right. Um, you know, et, et cetera. I don't want to stop testing, but I, the, 
and I, look, I'm not smart enough to know what the answer is here, but intuitively, I think what it it, it probably means keep the test, but 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 dial back the stakes in a sense. In other words, the moment I've said this for years. As a teacher, if you told me that uh, my job depended on on getting a short term bump in test scores right now, I would do a lot of stuff that I wouldn't ordinarily do. I do skills and strategies in reading. I do drill and kill and math, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So yeah, you know, let's not pretend that 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 this is not having a deleterious effect and let's stop pretending that we know better than parents. You know, let's bring our listeners up to speed about where this all even came from. So uh, in in a couple of weeks, we will be recognizing the 35th anniversary of A Nation at Risk, 1983, right? 35 years where uh, this uh, illustrious commission decided and basically proclaimed that we were mile-wide and an inch deep on curriculum. Mm -hmm. We, uh, those in school at the time, had been exposed to a smorgasbord of courses. That was me. I got to take uh, photography Mm -hmm. instead of American history as my choice in a beautiful um, New Jersey public school. Uh, And then we went on to create state standards. Mm -hmm. State standards weren't good enough. We created a national, uh, basically, accountability system, NCLB. Yep. And at the time, charter schools had already been created, for example, public schools of choice. There had been voucher programs giving mm-hmm. parents options to go to private schools. Yep. And I think the assumption was that those schools, if they did it differently, would be measured differently. But somehow we threw them all back into the same box. So it's yeah. looking a lot the same as the system – that we were trying to innovate from before. Yeah, I mean, you know, and I, I, I say this as, again, as a former public school teacher, uh, I, I think the intent of all, all of this was uh, wrong for all the right reasons, I guess you could say. And I don't want to paint with too broad a brush because, again, I'm not, you know, my reform credentials are in pretty good order, I think. I'm, what is reform? Know, before you go anywhere. Well, to me, it's, it's uh, that, boy, we could have a whole other conversation about that. Um, is reform about holding schools accountable? Is, ref- is reform about improving professional practice? I've been for many, many years, the guy who says, um, oh, testing, charter schools, data, teacher quality, yes, yes, yes. Hey, can we talk about what the kids are doing all day? And a lot of our um, economist-minded accountability, you know, data wonk friends are like, oh, that doesn't matter or or worse, oh, that's already settled. Well, no, it's not. Mm-hmm. You know, in other words, once you've sp- – and I don't want to be that guy who waves the bloody shirt, right, who says, oh, unless you've been in the classroom, you can't possibly understand. However, <laughs> unless you've been in the classroom, some of this stuff sometimes gets lost. Upon you, you know we don't we don't consider uh, what all this stuff looks like uh, in in the classroom. So you know for years now, I feel like I'm a broken record on this. I'm the guy who says, okay, uh, let's decide what kids need to know. Let's decide where we want to get them, and design accountability practice that incentivizes the practices that will get them there. Um, but we do tend to, I think, t- treat schools and classrooms as black boxes and assume that uh, that professional practice is in better shape than it actually is. And you just yes, absolutely, it's a professional practice. Is basically meaning teachers being able to teach what it is kids should know and be able to do. Yeah, look, if, if teachers, if 3.7 million teachers knew what it took to raise scores, trust me, Jeannie, they'd be doing it. Yes, okay, yes, so yes. so let's be really clear on that. Okay, it's you know this is not about incentivizing good practice. So for years, I've been the guy who says, "Hey, let's let's apply reform thinking to professional practice," because it's not that teachers are sitting around dragging their feet, refusing to do right by kids. Uh, I, I think it's a much more common experience to say that. T- 
that 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 are our worst schools, and I'm making air quotes around the word worse, are, are are not filled with you know union adult tenured layabouts refusing to do their jobs. They're they're filled with earnest people trying hard and failing. That's right. So let's work on that. Right. Work. On, we have to work on that too because we have a teacher shortage or, or potential for a teacher shortage as people age out and people don't want to come in the classroom at the same rates yeah. that they may have wanted to once upon a time. Mm-hmm. But let's go back to this comment that you made that I think is really what parents fundamentally and what kids want to go to school for. It's what they are learning. Yeah. So you are a big fan. In fact, I think you are a senior official with the Core Knowledge oh, Foundation. Yeah. Well, Edie Hirsch, who right? just turned 90, oh my gosh. is kind of the architect of whatever, whatever sorry little career I've ever had. I mean, when I was teaching in the fifth grade, his work was – he was the one guy who described what I was seeing in my South Bronx classroom every day. Kids who could decode but could not comprehend. Right. Uh, and I remember when I would bring up his work in my professional development sessions in my master's classes, I would say, you know, what about this Hirsch stuff? And I would always hear some variation of, oh, that's that dead white guy stuff. Nobody takes that seriously. Right. And what he said, like, by the way, he was a not... he was a left-leaning progressive Still who is. said, right, yeah. who said it's what uh, – so cultural literacy, for those of you listening, E.D. Hirsch wrote cultural literacy and that was really just about people in general, what we should know to be able to have a shared, has shared vocabulary and a shared understanding. Yeah, that's exactly And then right. that went on to launch the core knowledge work and foundation, yep. which was what every child should know and be able to do at every grade level. And yeah, there were but, books called. But let's be clear, not because Don Hirsch or somebody else says so, not coming down from the mount with stone tablets say, this is what you should learn because I like this stuff. It's because of what language is. You and I are having a conversation and and our, you know, the, the, the language that passes between uh, literate people is just chock-a-block with assumed knowledge and, and background knowledge and vocabulary. Right. And and it's, it's kind of like the, the, the water that we, you know, the old thing about how the fish doesn't know it's in water. Linguistically, we don't realize that we're swimming in this this rich stew of vocabulary and background knowledge. And and if you come from a language poor home, like every single kid I've ever taught, um, then you then then the meaning gets lost. I mean, That's I'm right. broadly oversimplifying Don Hirsch's entire life work. Um, but but in other words, if you treat reading as a skill, like riding a bike or throwing a ball, you miss that. So the moment back to the accountability. The moment that you reduce a child's education to reading skills and strategies, math, and not much else, you're actually making it worse. Kids, especially low-income kids like the ones that I taught, they need all the science, all the history, the geography, the art, the music, that so-called cultural literacy, not because isn't it nice to know, but because that's what language is. Right. It, it rests on that assumed and, 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 and standard basic uh, uh, body of knowledge that we all share. And not only language rests on that, but communication. Yeah. I mean, part of what you're trying to do with schooling is prepare students for life. Whether they choose a career directly, whether they go into college, and if you if you've ever spent any time, those of you out there listening in a community of of less advantaged, lesser educated people, not by their own fault, many times they misunderstand cues. Sure, right? It's just like it's like anyone who has not who's isolated. You can have wealthy people and eccentric people, but if you're isolated, you don't understand what's really happening. Yep, and you think someone giving you instruction, for example, in a workplace is um, being antagonistic when they're yeah. giving you instruction, right? Yep. And so part of that language also in education process to be the socializing. And I think to your point and the conversation that's been happening nationally around education reform today, Robert, uh, is that 
if we do hold students to these tests to be able to show the public and feel better that our money is being spent on something that's helping you progress Mm -hmm. and schools that aren't progressing, we're going to close down. And you've isolated those teaching and learning pieces Mm -hmm. to just a couple of subjects. Then are you ignoring that you may be doing something extraordinarily different in the arts? Yeah. Maybe you've created a new personalized learning program and you're achieving mastery. Maybe um, you are teaching about history, but mm-hmm. that's not coming out in that reading and math score. Yep. Maybe you started at the 20th, 5th percentile in terms of, you know, you're, you're reading less and poor, more poorly than 75% of the kids out there, but you end up at the 50th after a couple of years. Yeah. Is that not something we want from people? You, you know, I, boy, it's funny. I, I, the, the more time I spend in this work, Jeannie, the, the, I feel like the less I know sometimes. Um, and, and I'm not just being you know, humble about that. I mean, it's daunting. And, and um, I'm starting to view schools as, as perhaps the most significant contribution they can make is in terms of school culture, in terms of attaching kids to civil society. And I, I never want to be that guy who says, oh, lousy test scores don't matter. They do matter. We, we wouldn't want lousy scores for our kids. We should not wish them away for other people's children. Um, but there's an emerging body of research that says that, well, great test scores do not necessarily lead to, to, to great life outcomes. I'm sure you saw the paper recently by, by Mike McShane and others that says that. Um, and, and I think two of the kids that I taught in the South Bronx 10, 15 years ago who, who you know, I don't want to be blithe about it. Um, I keep in touch with most of my former students and they seem to have in, in the main uh, gotten traction in life, which, you know, God bless. Now, this is, does not, this is not excuse away the right. poor education that frankly I and others gave to them. Um, but there's clearly a lot more at work here than just, you know, by their test scores shall ye know them. Right. At the same time, part of what started the whole um, accountability craze, if you will, was that we saw all of these school districts across the country that were not doing well and we let yeah. them persist, right? We let the rubber room in New yeah. York where we sent – failing teachers to go sit so we could keep paying them. And so to me, one of the weird areas that we have to make this division or, or sort of the separation is if you are mandated to go to a public school and you have no other choice, mm-hmm. there should absolutely be some public oversight and some of expectation course. you're improving. Of course. If, however, you have been given the opportunity through a publicly funded scholarship through the opportunity to pick a charter school, mm-hmm. maybe some new hybrid school of some sort to go there and your parents or you yourself have removed yourself from that system and put yourself in that school. Why should they be held to the same, not the same high standard, but why should they be held to certain outcomes when the outcomes of that school and your intention is Send your child that school might be different. Look, you know, we're sitting here in New York City, which is home to some of the best private and parochial Catholic schools in the country. Um, my daughter went to one or two of them as well. I can promise you that um, affluent parents on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, about a mile from where we sit, uh, never once looked at test scores when deciding between, say, Brearley and Dalton and Collegiate and St. Anne's. One, those test scores weren't available. Right. Two, it's just not the way they keep score, right. so to speak. One, they and, and in fairness, they just assume and correctly say, well, of course my child will learn how to read. Um, but they become pretty good consumers of, 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 of tone and culture and educational quality, look and feel as it were. Um, one of the things that most irritates me, and this is not exactly the point that you're making, Jeannie, but I want to make it anyway, um, 
is I, I think that we're, we're guilty in ed reform of, of um, assuming that low-income parents can't do that. And I, and I find that um, not just maddening but frankly a little bit racist. And, and I've become very fond of saying that the soft bigotry of expectations has not gone away. We just apply it to parents now. Mm-hmm. You know, we assume that they can't make these decisions and, and, and I find that to be uh, a, a curious thing. Right. And at the same time, a lot of parents, to your to your point, too, will put their kids in schools that may not be good for one of their kids, but might have been good for another. Well, that certainly right. happened right. um, and, in my case. Yeah. And look, in fairness, you know, we've all seen those examples of, you know, what, what appear to us to be the, you know, the, the really bad school that the parents uh, resist seeing closed. Um, you know, I, I used to get up in high dudgeon about that and say, what's wrong with these parents? And now my uh, – I'm not saying that they're right, but I want to know more. What is it that they see in these schools that, uh, that you and me and everybody we know does not? Let's let's switch slight, slightly. So um, if you have just uh, gotten coffee, come back, don't know who we're talking to, it's Jeannie Allen, Reality Check. I'm with Robert Pondicio, journalist, educator, Fordham Found Institute fellow. Robert, uh, What's going on in New York? You you are in New York and you work nationally. But what do people really think about the state of schools in New York? And and is there this like elite, not elite? And does it happen elsewhere? I mean, there are all these people who have tons of money and education, and yet they keep electing people <laughs> who leave the schools to just just fall apart. Uh, What's the disconnect? I, here? I guess I could cynically argue that those uh, who are the, the the savviest consumers of education here, at least in New York City, are the ones who are the quickest to buy their way out of uh, either by moving to the suburbs or or ah. paying private school tuition. New York, I, I don't think, is typical though. I mean, for one, uh, New York is kind of the hotbed of the opt out movement. In other words, we haven't been hearing as much about it this year as we have in years past, but it's still a thing. Where a um, I don't don't quote me on this data, but I'm fairly sure that New York has the, uh, the highest rate of, of parents refusing to let their kids sit for standardized tests in the nation. Um, or if there's another one that's higher, I don't know, I don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. So in, in that regard, it's a bit of a bellwether, a bit of a canary in a coal mine for all these things that you and I have been discussing about how, hey, we're pushing this stuff too hard and we're going to um, you know, turn parents off our reform agenda if we don't kind of change, you know, sing a different tune. Um, so I'm not sure that New York, in short, is, is a – on the one hand, it's a bellwether. On the other hand, I'm not sure it's typical of right. what's going on elsewhere in the country. Right, when probably isn't in most cases. Yeah. And then you think about rural America. And how uh, in rural America we not only have poor K twelve schools, yeah. but some a huge majority of, of of adults are illiterate. And the tyranny of distance. I mean, here in Manhattan, uh, New York City, you are within walking distance of lots of different uh, school options. So this is a a wonderful little petri dish for 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 choice. Um, my my full time home is in upstate New York in a very rural area, and um, school choice is not part of the discussion up there because. Uh, yeah, you you could drive your kid, you know, thirty miles to Albany or, or or some such, or somewhere in the Hudson Valley. But as a practical matter, the central school district is the only game in town. There, there is no other option. There ain't going to be any other option. So that this brings me back to my my main interest in education, which is how do we improve professional practice? How do we make sure that every school you know, choice is great as a way to leverage change? Mm-hmm. But for some number of American families, that is just a non-starter. They this is where they go to school. This is where their kids are going to go to school, where their kids are going to go to school, on and on and on. We've got to make those better. And when you talk 
about instructional practice and the practice. Um, you are a big fan, passionate about direct instruction, which you call the Rodney Dangerfield of curriculum, I think. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, mean I, 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 I wouldn't say that I'm a big fan of direct instruction. I respect the heck out of it because all it does is work, you know. Okay, <laughs> well, well, then you're well, a big fan of no, this. You know, well, I think, I think it's a good way to get American education down inside the 20-yard line, to, to, to use a football metaphor. What is um, it? Tell, tell Well, direct instruction, uh, and you're, you're, not, you're nicely alluding to a piece I wrote last month for, for Fordham. Uh, there was a meta-study that shows 50, literally 50 years of, of a track record on the direct instruction, capital D, capital I, the, the, the branded direct instruction products created by Zig Engelman of, I believe, the University of Oregon and some mm-hmm. others. Um, these things have a 50-year track record and, and hundreds of data points, a meta-study that shows that this stuff works. It's very, very effective. Um, now, the risk of wonking out, although I guess this is okay, where it's, it's, a, it's an education pod- podcast, so we can wonk out on this. Um, you know, uh, some teachers love direct instruction. Others will you know, have the vapors and say, oh, you're taking away my professional autonomy, et cetera, et cetera. Um, one of the things that intrigues me about direct instruction and curriculum at large, I mean, yeah, I've, I've already confessed my curricular bias. I'm an unrepentant E.D. Hirsch core knowledge guy. Um, that said, would I want to impose that on every single school? No, I would not. Mm-hmm. I'm a choice guy as mm-hmm. well. But what I, the, the, the more time I spend in this work, I'm, I'm increasingly intrigued not by what the curriculum is but by what the curriculum does. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you know this. I've spent the last year uh, embedded in a success academy school mm-hmm. for a book that I'm working on. And even though their curriculum is not always what I might choose, they get extraordinary results with it. And I started thinking, well, why is that? Um, and one of the conclusions that I'm in, in, intrigued by is, well, and I, again, I'm speaking as a former teacher, you know, ask a new teacher how much time they spend lesson planning. Right. You know, 20, 30 hours it's a outrageous. week. outrageous. You know who's really educating our kids? Google. Pinterest. Right. That's, right. that's where American teachers are exactly. getting their lesson plans. That is not a very good use of yes. time. Maybe there's gold out there, but also maybe there's dreck. We just, we just don't know. But the, the, the salient point is that 20 or 30 hours a week that I'm spending on Google or Pinterest thinking, what the heck am I going to teach tomorrow? If, I, if somebody just hands me a curriculum and says, these are your lessons for tomorrow, my job changes. Now I'm not staring at that empty plan book and saying, oh, no, what am I, I going to teach? No. Now, now you think I'm, about I'm looking at student work. I'm thinking about questioning strategies. I'm building relationships with students. I'm conferencing any number of things that are more value than what the heck am I going to teach tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So whether it's direct instruction, core knowledge, or, or curricula that, that are not my preferred flavor, um, I'm really intrigued by this idea that we need to really rethink the job of the American teacher. And, and I, wanna, I don't, I don't want to be the guy who says autonomy is an overrated virtue. No, no. It's so true because content matters, right? So we've talked about content, content matters. matters. And, content and, matters. Choice is important, but content matters too. Yeah. And Edie Hirsch, I was fortunate to have Edie Hirsch. Hirsch, again, the founder of Cultural Literacy Core Knowledge Foundation. You just said turned 90 recently. Yeah. Um, in 1998, at the fifth anniversary of the Center for Education Reform, Fantastic. which uh, I founded, uh, and he basically spoke to the audience and said, all this great stuff you guys are all talking about, about giving kids and parents options, essentially is irrelevant unless the content is there. Yeah, I and I that. think today in 2018, Robert, that is more important than ever before as we see and participate in a nation where people are fighting and having arguments about things without necessarily informed by history. Yeah. And so forget your political ideology and forget who you think should be president or in Congress or anywhere else. 
the content, the power of content, which even Bill Bennett said as Education Secretary, William J. Bennett, content, choice, and character – Without a base of content to know why we're having an argument about yeah. North Korea, why we're fighting about guns, what the stuff is about, yeah. regardless yeah. of your point of view, our ability to have that conversation requires not, not just the confidence that content gives you, but the ability to pull that out. And I just fear that even in our best schools are lacking in delivering this important, rich history, not just of the nation, but of the world. Yeah, no, I, I, yes to all that. Um, you know, and, and as you know, uh, we get in these deathless arguments in education about uh, about culture, not not school culture to which we were alluding to before, but 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 um, students' home culture, their home language, their backgrounds, etc. Wanting to valorize for all good and right reasons uh, children's backgrounds. Um, you know the, the uncomfortable piece of of the Hirsch work is is and I, I don't want to put words in his mouth. This is my summary of his work: is that look, whether you like it or not, uh, language is a cultural artifact. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there, there there's a set of assumptions, background knowledge, uh, etc., that the average literate American has in the dominant speech culture. That, right. that that those who are not part of that conversation are lacking. So then what? I don't want to be the guy now or ever who says, you know, learn the Greek myths, don't learn the Anansi stories, etc. Like that is not a conversation that I want to have. But I want educators to be informed enough to to make those decisions uh, for the students that they teach. In other words, you have to understand that you cannot change this. You know, it it is what it is. You know, this is – language is a cultural artifact and that is is an immutable fact. Now that you know that – teacher, school, district. Now, how are you going to arm your students for success in the future? And and parents, once you know that, how are you going to hold your school to that standard and make sure that you help if you can choose schools? If not, that you can influence the content of your schools to make sure that your students are exposed yeah. to all those things. We have a couple minutes left. I just want to um, I want to ask you a personal question, Uh-oh. and I want you to also reflect on something. You know, here we are. This is an education show. Education is in the top of of people's list whenever the most important issues in the country, whenever they're surveyed, and yet our media doesn't cover it nearly as much as they should. And you come from journalism. Yeah. Why is this? Why can't we get our po- politicians? our media to think about this. It's it's considered like the lowest beat in a newspaper. Yeah. On the Hill or in states, the education LA is like where you go before you know before you you know because you're so junior and, and you yeah. don't qualify for foreign yeah. policy. How are we going to change this? We're talking about well, something that's fundamental to be, be the world. Be careful what you wish for. You know, sometimes uh, le- the, the less attention, the better. Look, I, I, at the risk of being glib, I actually think it's it's gotten better. Um, in other words, I'm kind of su- surprised, I guess I would say, pleasantly and unpleasantly at how much coverage education gets. Good. Um, I mean, in just the time that I've been in this work now, less than 20 years, not nearly as long as you, Jeannie. Uh, oh, yeah, but I'm younger than you. Uh, that, that's true. Um, there was no chalk beat. There was no 74. There right. was no education post. Um, I go to EWA, Education Writers of America, conferences all the time, and, and they're chock-a-block with, with local reporters. So I feel like there's, there's a certain amount of energy and dynamism on the education that, that in education uh, journals and stuff. Yeah. But what about no, I mean, the in Times local, in and the Post papers. and local papers? Well, okay, good. Okay, Broadcast that is, that is news. Not the same thing as good coverage. Right, right. right so I think um, right. 
and, and I don't want to be, um, you know, be like, you know, the, the angry old curmudgeon who, you know, says, get off my lawn, kids. Um, but, you know, there, look, there's a lack of sophistication in education even among those of us in this field. Let's right. be candid. Right. So why should we expect it's going to be better among reporters? Because who are they talking to? Us. Right. So, you know, in, in other words, we need to kind of raise our own game in a sense if we want the coverage of this of this game to improve. That's really interesting. Uh, final question for Robert Pendicio, my guest today on Reality Check. How did you get into this? Give me your personal story. <laughs> Can I tell you the honest truth? Yes. Um, uh, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't confess this. Uh, teaching was – the closest thing I could describe it to for me was a mid-career impulse purchase. Uh, I was working in the magazine business within walking distance of where we're sitting. I was working for Business Week. It was 2002. And I was – there's this great old ad campaign in the New York City subway system for the New York City teaching fellows. All right. And I'm riding home one day and I look up and they caught me at the right mood and the ad said, you remember your first grade teacher's name. Who will remember yours? I thought, wow, that's really good. Wow. And I, I was about to turn 40 years old. So I was kind of thinking, what do I want to do with the rest of my life anyway? It's like – well, that sounds interesting. I think I'm going to sign up for that. And, and then I described the process of going in the teaching fellows, kind of like being on the game show Survivor. You know, it's <laughs> like they kept not voting me off the island as as I went through this process. And b- about midway through, I th- remember thinking to myself, you know, if they're dumb enough to 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 give me a classroom, I'm dumb enough to take it. Um, so I mean, I shouldn't be glib about this, but I, I did not intend this to be a second career. This was going to be a two year mid career public service stint, and then I'd figure out what I want to be when I grow up. Uh, ended up teaching in literally the lowest performing school in New York City's lowest performing district. And you know, like so many of us, just kind of got militant about what I saw. And, and once, once it kind of gets under your skin, you can't, can't look away. And then I became passionate about curriculum and then I became parent, passionate about parenting issues. And then suddenly here I am. And, you, and people start realizing you had uh, a really amazing brain and this great experience. And so now policy and media take advantage of you. And I'm so glad you saw that ad because we need great people like you very kind. Um, helping you, guide us. Thank you so much, Robert Pendicio. This has been Reality Check. Um, tune in again soon. Don't forget to uh, find us on Google Play, Stitcher, tune in, all those great cool things that you can hear us um, every week. Thanks so much. Thank you. Reality Check is a podcast produced by National Review and posted at nationalreview.com. If you like what you heard in this podcast, and I hope you did, you might want to subscribe for free and make sure you don't miss any future programs. You can subscribe at iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and tune in. And you can also find much more about education reform, opportunity, and innovation at the Center for Education Reform's website, edreform.com. 